Welcome to WKXL in the Morning. I'm your host, AJ Kierset. Be sure to get the back episodes of the show at nhtalkradio.com. Right now we have our regular weekly segment with the New Hampshire Bulletin. Join us every Friday in the 6 a.m. hour. More from them at newhampshirebulletin.com. This week, reporter Amanda Gokey is back. Welcome. Hi, AJ. Thanks for having me. So... It seems to have been overshadowed in light of all the national stories this past week. Uh, so many decisions coming from the Supreme Court. But the there's last week especially was brought up the huge surge in energy costs that have already started and are supposed to really peak coming up in August. And uh, advocates are trying to point to some policy actions that might be able to fix this, correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, basically, Eversource and uh, Liberty Utilities have announced that their rates are going to be going, they're going to be doubling. So they're going to go from about um, 11 cents per kilowatt hour to um, 22 cents. And the New Hampshire Electric Co-op also, their their rates are going to be rising not quite as much, um, but they're still going to be going up to around 17 cents. So that's some really significant um, increases that people will see in their monthly bills. And really, you know, there's there's pretty broad consensus. That's what's what's driving this increase is just the extremely high cost of natural gas. So a lot of people are pointing to, you know, the conflict in Ukraine with um, many countries in Europe sort of trying to wean themselves off of natural gas and fossil fuels from Russia. That means all these European countries are there's demand abroad for natural gas. So that so, you know, states like New Hampshire are competing with European nations in terms of how much everybody's willing to pay. So the cost of natural gas has has tripled. Um, and that's not really something there's a whole lot that we can do in New Hampshire to to bring down that cost. Um, but there are certain things that are being discussed, um, both in terms of what people can do in their homes and, you know, what policies are available. So, you know, one of the things that's been observed, the electric co-op has rates that are five cents lower than the investor owned utilities. And they attribute that to their flexibility. So they go to the market more frequently Utilities like Eversource, Liberty, and Unitil, they only go to the market two times a year. So there's one time in the summer, which are the rates that we're seeing now, and there's one time in the winter. So that'll be um, in February for both Eversource and and Liberty. Unitil's on a slightly different schedule. Um, But what that means is they go out and they basically ask for RFPs from suppliers saying, you know, what's the what's the cheapest you can do? This is how much energy we need. What's the rate that you can give us versus what the co-op is doing is they're going out continually and saying, what's the cheapest price today? If they see a favorable um, contract that's available, they have analysts that look at that and decide, okay, like this will be a good price. We want to lock this in now. They have contracts that sort of last for different periods of time. They're laddered or layered. So you have them sort of starting intermittently at different periods in time. Um, so it requires more effort and more staff um, and time on that, but it has allowed them to keep their their prices a little bit lower. It's also unfortunately confusing for the consumer because you got to be able to find those co-ops or those third-party providers that you can buy the electricity through. It's like we experience it here in Concord, especially where we 
I'll, I'll happen to remember because I got another mailer and then reach out and it's like, oh, okay, this, I guess I'm up for, for renewing on where I'm purchasing my electricity through, even though it's coming through Unitil. Right. And that's a good point. I think you're right that there is some confusion. So to clarify the New Hampshire Electric Co-op, that's sort of there. They have a territory area that they cover. Um, and so it's only if you live in that area that you are a part of that co-op. Um, and, you know, that's why there's such kind of intense regulatory framework around the utilities is because it's not like you're not a consumer in the way you are for other services like internet, let's say in certain places, you have a choice of your provider. Electricity, it's it's traditionally and historically, it's been a monopoly and that's changing in important ways, but still in Concord, you know, we are all served by Unitil because that's, they're the provider for that area. But you're right in that you do have some choices as a consumer. There are what's called third party um, competitive suppliers. So you can look, and those are, I think, probably the flyers that you're getting. It's probably from those types of people who are saying, or companies rather, that are saying, look, we can offer you a lower price for your energy, and you can you can save like a significant amount of money from, from choosing that option. So that's another thing consumer advocate is encouraging people to look into right now is whether you, you opt for one of those um, third-party providers if you could save money, especially right now, like the price you're looking to beat if you're in Eversource or um, Liberty Territory is 22 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so that's sort of the, that's that's what you're looking, looking for. Um, and you should be aware. So if you wanna pursue that option, what you can do is the, the Public Utilities Commission, they have a list, a comprehensive list of the providers that are out there offering these different rates. You need to be pretty savvy, look through the contract, the terms of that contract very carefully. Oftentimes they're really long-term contracts. So you might see a reader recently said they, they signed up for one 12 cents per kilowatt hour. So that's significantly less, right? That's 10 cents less, 60 uh, in a month, this person will save about $60 on their electric bill but they have to sign up for a 30 month contract. So that's a really long time that you're locked into that rate. And if the utilities price goes down, you know, you could you could lose out in that way. Yeah, another thing, if you happen to go through third party suppliers like that also, is you have the ability to pay in for uh, green credits and the possibility of assisting with payment for solar or wind in certain parts of the state or country. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. There's some of these providers you can um, look through, and they do offer sort of renewable renewable options if that's a preference that you have. Um, that's another thing that you can certainly um, shop around for. Natural gas is that uh, is the price of that determined on the global stage, just like uh, traditional oil is. It is. Yeah, that's that's um, sort of determined by by global markets. What is interesting and what's been pointed out to me. So New England is sort of unique in that it, it is very reliant on natural gas. So there are certain days where for we and we use it, I should say, for both for electricity. So powering homes, but also a lot of people use it for heating their homes. 
So that causes prices to go up, especially high in the winter. Um, and in the wintertime, those sort of people who are using it for heat get first dibs on the supply, so to say. So it's especially pinched for the electric um, rates. And if there's not enough to go around, we import liquid natural gas, which is also really expensive. Um, so we're especially rely on it, reliant on it here in the Northeast um, because of the way the grid was built out and the, there was a lot of um, natural gas generators were built sort of like in the early 2000s. And this was a time when the cost of natural gas was really low. And and so it's it, conquered pe- having it literally thought, all over the place. Right. And so people thought, oh, if we build out more natural gas generators, this will help us to keep electric prices low. Now, obviously what we're seeing is the opposite of that because on the global market, the cost has just really skyrocketed and that's outside of our control. Yeah, what's it What's it like across the country? I mean, you said New Hampshire is unique where it relies on natural gas. Can you speak at all about how it varies a bit across uh, the United States? Yeah, so I mean, I did ask this question and I'm I certainly, my expertise is much more focused on New Hampshire, but I... I have spoken with you know energy experts who say we're a little bit unique in in this setup. So other states can turn to less expensive alternatives um, that are available to them that that we can't. We're you know another thing you hear a lot of times that is said and is true is that we're at the end of the line for the the natural gas pipelines. Um, so it, it can much more easily get into other markets in other states. And on top of that, those states don't have the same dependence on natural gas that we do in the first place. So those states, for instance, they might have a coal plant that they'll fire up when it starts getting really expensive um, and that can bring costs down. Obviously, you know, that's detrimental environmentally speaking in terms of climate change, um, but in terms of the, the impact that people are feeling in their monthly bills, it can it can offset that to some to some extent, and you know on the flip side of that, um, the argument has been has been made um, by clean energy advocates that if you build out more renewable sources of generation, you're less vulnerable to the price volatility in these markets. Um, things like wind and solar they're expensive to build out, but the actual cost there's no cost for the sun to shine, there's no cost for the wind to blow. Um, so I think, you know, some of those people are really hoping that this moment spurs us to think really strategically about resources in the Gulf of Maine with offshore wind getting built and things like that. Yeah, that's very common when it comes to big shifts where you you, you need to have the, uh, the electric shock of, oh my God, this is really bad or expensive or the resource is totally gone and now we got to come up with a new solution for uh, to motivate lawmakers and businesses to start moving to that space. And a world conflict over in Europe where there's a ground war literally happening with Russia invading a territory um, – could be really important to that because Europe is very reliant on natural gas and oil from that part of the world. So, I mean, it, hopefully uh, companies over there innovate as, as much as here in the United States so that we can have some uh, answers to this. Uh, mm-hmm. Moving on to some more of what else you wrote about this week. A stricter landfill uh, siting criteria It's now depending on a veto override. What's going on with that? 
Yeah. So this is sort of um, legislation that was um, sparked by Casella's proposal to site a new landfill in the North Country in a town called Dalton. That was a very controversial um, proposal at the time. And essentially what this bill would do is it would it would um, force landfills, force there to be a setback for landfills um, from bodies of water in the state. So it's a it's really intended as a water quality protection measure. Um, and it would make that distance be it would water would have to take at least five years to travel between the landfill and before reaching a body of water. Um, the, the thought process behind that is, you know, that would be enough time if there was a leakage from a landfill, it would be enough time to sort of catch that and re- remediate the situation um, before New Hampshire's groundwaters or surface waters are, are contaminated. Yeah, and um, I imagine and- such restrictions like that are very rough in uh, New England. Once again, the unique situation of New England where there's literally water every mile or two that you go. So that's got to really impact. And it's probably why Sununu's having some problems with it. That's 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 kind of what Sununu said, and so he released a veto message on this on this bill, and basically said it would make it really difficult for landfills to be cited in the state of New Hampshire. He, you know, pointed to some concerns that he had over, you know, how if in the future there were was, you know, New Hampshire trash had to be transported out of state, that that would increase, uh, you know, the cost to people to to dispose of their um, of their trash proponents of, you know, stricter siting requirements for landfills kind of pushed back on those ideas. And they said, you know, um, according to numbers from DES, it would really only rule out 15% of the state. Basically, a lot of the state is, it's, you know, we're, we're the granite state, right? So they were looking at numbers from DES that are places where you have um, sort of sandy soil because water travels much more quickly through sand and certain um, other kinds of soils that you could have. But sand is like a good example, right? Versus something like granite, if you have granite, it's not going to travel through that in the same way. It would travel very, very slowly if it could get through it at all. so their their contention was that this would only affect 15 percent of the of the state. And um, I think they took issue with with Sununu's claim that trash would have to be exported out of the state as well. Are there currently any issues with the existing system that's raising why this legislation is being pushed through? Or has this just been a long term thing that advocates haven't been happy about? Yeah, so. <sighs> People do point to water contamination that's happened in the state. Um, one example is the Coakley landfill, um, and there's been some issues with PFAS getting into the water. Um, obviously, once you know PFAS is in the water, it's really, really hard to remove it. So that's a part of why there's this, you know, such emphasis on trying to stop it at the source. It's, you know, we've seen that issue play out. Um, not not contamination from a landfill, but PFAS contamination in in Merrimack, obviously, um, and just how expensive the remediation has been. And, you know, it's, it's just can really impact people's lives when the water coming out of their taps is, is contaminated. So I think that's sort of the, the concern that people are, are pointing to. Um, I should say too, right now, the, the state does, there is a setback, but it's, it's 200 feet. So 
that's kind of what they're looking to update with this law, which is House Bill 1454. Um, and that veto override, if it, it, it probably wouldn't happen until sometime in the fall when the legislature reconvenes. So the issue is a little bit in limbo until until the legislature does does reconvene. And, you know, this bill did have pretty broad bipartisan support when it went through the legislature initially. It passed the House on a voice vote and it passed the Senate um, in a 16 to 18 vote. So I, I would say these proponents of it are, are optimistic that it, it has a chance at um, overturning the, this overriding this uh, veto. Last few minutes here, let's talk a bit about some federal money that could possibly help with municipal recycling, which is an expensive thing for many towns in the state to deal with and sorting out the materials and everything. What's going to be possibly made available? Yeah, so there's a lot of money um, that'll be available. It's nationwide. So um, the EPA is developing its $375 million um, in federal grants. Um, and municipalities in the state could apply for this money. It's through the um, the BIL, the infrastructure bill. So it's it's that's really what it's targeting the um, recycling infrastructure. Um, and also, there's a component of it that has to do with education and outreach. So you know that's a big issue with recycling is just knowing how each town manages its its recyclables because it, it can be different from town to town. So in cities like you know I know for in Concord. We have single sort recycling, so everything kind of goes into the bin together. But a lot of small towns, you know, you go to the transfer station and you have to manually sort your plastic from your aluminum cans, from, you know, your cardboard. And that's so that those, you know, transfer stations are able to actually collect the materials and then get some money for it. But with that process, you know, they need containers to be able to keep those materials. They need things called balers. And basically what that does is it compacts the materials into these really dense little cubes so you can save a lot of it up and then have enough and when it's you know when you've kind of filled that um that trailer or whatever the storage unit is that you're using you can bring it to the market at that point and hopefully sell it for for some money to that would go back into that recycling um program you know i i spoke to um brian patno he manages the transfer station um, in lancaster and what he said was, you know, in the North Country, they just don't have the recycling facilities they need to address certain kinds of materials. So things that are recyclable or that could even be reused, like building materials and construction debris, um, things like wood um, or sheetrock. Those things are just going into the landfill right now because it's too far away to drive them to the south of the state. It's too costly. It you know, emits a lot of greenhouse gas emissions if you are trucking that stuff all the way across the state to get rid of it. Um, so the hope is that through the, these federal grant programs, municipalities would, would be able to access the funding to kind of build out their, their programs and then get the word out about you know, how people need to be processing these materials and, and how to recycle appropriately. Very briefly, I mean, what's the status of this at this point for this funding? So, yeah, that's a great question. The EPA is still developing these programs, so they've asked for for feedback. So, you know, if people in the state have input, um, you know, if you work for a municipality and you you say, like, this is something that's really important for us to include in this program, here are some, you know, ways that we should be thinking about how um, the money is allocated. 
you can provide that. Um, and those deadlines are later in July. And then they expect that they'll start taking applications for this money in the fall. Awesome. Amanda Goki over the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. They joined MKXL in the morning every Friday. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. We'll be right back after this.